Hi, Pastor Adam here, and we are continuing our analysis of Joseph today and looking at how he conducts himself, the agency of the person of Joseph. We can learn a lot from Joseph's narrative, from his story. The thing we're looking at today is just the capacity Joseph had for forgiveness, how forgiveness pointed toward Christ, and how we should live in that forgiveness at all times as Christians. If that sounds like something that's interesting to you, then check out this sermon. Last week, the point that I was getting at, the point I hope you took from it, was just taking the story of Joseph with a fresh perspective. Um, many of us, you know, know the story of Joseph, at least are a little familiar with the story of Joseph. Um, but have we considered that Joseph's story was not necessarily his per se. It wasn't about Joseph. That's kind of the point I was trying to make last week. It was never meant to be about Joseph, um, ironically, right? I mentioned that there's like 15 chapters telling the sort of saga of Joseph and what he went through, and he actually gets a lot more time than a lot of other people in scripture that we, you know, revere, and rightfully so. But like Joseph's story is is told in great detail in many chapters um, and many, like many chapters of his life, right? From the time that he was betrayed by his brothers as a, you know, adolescent to the time of his death many, many decades later. But it wasn't necessarily Joseph's story. He was part of a greater narrative. Um, and it's funny that the writer of Hebrews actually remembers Joseph not for the 15 chapters and in great detail and all the things he went through, you know, it doesn't really, the writer of Hebrews doesn't really highlight a lot of the things that we might expect to be highlighted. In Hebrews um, chapter, oh, I didn't write the chapter, shame on me, chapter 4, verse 22, it's out of Hebrews, I assure you that, I didn't write the specific address down. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently, the people of Israel would leave Egypt. And it's that simple line. It's really unglamorous, right? Really unglamorous. But Joseph was playing a part in a greater narrative. He was a, he understood his role in bringing about the covenant promise of God's people um, and preserving the lineage of God's people, preserving the seed as we talked about last week. And that's how the writer of Hebrews remembers Joseph in that sort of hall of faith um, portion of scripture that we see, where he's talking about Moses, he's talking about Abraham, Jacob, he mentions Joseph. And it's a simple line that he says that, you know, basically he understood his part, he played his role in preserving it, the line, the people of Israel. Joseph, as we talked about last week, was really just doing a really good job, really mature job, really faithful job at playing that role in God's greater narrative. And he understood this, and he understood God's providence in a way that was able to sustain him through the multitude of things that he went through. No doubt when he was at his lowest, he probably had some understanding that he was playing a larger part. He went through a great deal by the time he ended up in a position of power at Pharaoh's right hand in the palace. He went through a great deal. But he didn't allow that to sway or shake him, and he didn't allow that to be the end. As I was putting it in my cell group last week, 
I, I found this like a, a good way to continue to reference it. But Joseph didn't cash in by the time he got to the palace. That wasn't the pinnacle of his story, even though from an outside perspective, it, it kind of looks like it, right? Went through all these things, and yet still God blessed him. Went through this, and yet still God blessed him. By the time he gets to the palace, and yet still God blessed him. It seems like that's the pinnacle of the Joseph arc. But he didn't cash in on that, where it might be tempting to, right? He's, like, secularly speaking, he's, like, set up. He's set up in his life. He has everything that you could probably hope to have, secularly speaking, right? He's well taken care of, wife, kids, position of power, respected, revered. Doesn't really have to answer to anyone. Everyone kind of has to answer to him in practical matters in the land and in the empire of Egypt. But he didn't cash in. Joseph's good news is that his story didn't end at the palace. He was committed to God, as I said, at preserving the covenant community. Um, and, it's this, and this is the lens that we ought to be remembering continuously throughout this month, throughout our life. This is the lens that we should remember the arc of Joseph through that he was part of a redemptive narrative that pointed toward Christ. So this week, as I said last week, we're going to hone in on a specific aspect of his character. What's funny about Joseph's story and like what's recorded is that it's you don't actually see Joseph uh, like a lot of dialogue and interchange, right, in that screenplay. <laughs> you see a lot of observation and a lot of things recorded and like the the outcome of how he handled himself you know but you don't actually see a lot of interchange like Moses observes and we observe just kind of the the trajectory of Joseph because of his integrity as a man um, but there is a particular point in scripture in his in his story that we actually do like see him and how he conducts himself and I alluded it to alluded to it a little bit last week and it's kind of where I want to hone in today but Joseph's ability to forgive and how that points to Christ to the greater redemptive narrative and person of Christ so it's Joseph's ability to forgive that we are to kind of examine today and um, reflect on as we think about our own agency like how he was able to forgive in what way like the circumstances these types of things so a lot of the times when we go through the Old Testament uh, stories and look to these important figures you know like we want to highlight the great in them and that's good you know and you know that Hebrews passage the Hall of Faith remembering these people for their greatness um, Abraham righteous because of his faith right Noah the last righteous man on earth um, David the man after God's own heart these types of things but the truth is that many of these guys, though they are counted as righteous and rightfully so because of all these things, they actually lived kind of rotten lives. Like we don't really like look to the Old Testament figures and necessarily say like just do like they did, full stop, in, in all of them, all of their person and how they conduct themselves. Like we go through that list of people and we see like a fair amount of sin in their life and a fair amount of unrighteousness um, and we don't say you know do that in fact it's like 
when we're talking to our kids, if we're like imagining that playing out, it's like, well, you want me to do like Abraham did, so like lie about my wife, my sister, like what? No, you don't do that. Um, but we contrast that with the person of Joseph, and we actually kind of can with what's recorded in Scripture, with his story in Genesis, like 36 to 49 or 50, like basically to the end, right? There's not a lot that we can say, don't do that. Like maybe we don't really know how the inter interchange and how he played, how he like interacted in his relationship with his brothers, like if he was like this insufferable favorite or something. That's not what it says, but by and large, we can kind of look to Joseph as one of the few people in scripture where it's like, do that, do that. Someone, maybe it was again in my cell group last week, but somebody like noted rightfully so that Joseph is often seen as an archetype of Christ. You guys have heard this? Yeah, he kind of is. Do you? Yeah. Right. Joseph is an archetype of Christ. He's like a pre-Christ figure. Um, one of the ways that he is is in what we're talking about today, how Joseph forgave, like the, the magnitude of his forgiveness when we consider his story, what he went through. Um, so yeah, I would say outside the cross, like outside of Jesus, in Genesis chapter 45, in Joseph, we see like arguably the most beautiful picture of forgiveness in all of scripture outside the cross outside of Jesus I'll make that clear <laughs> Joseph points to Christ it's like the most complete and pronounced of anyone that we see especially in like the Old Testament stories and figureheads Genesis chapter 45 so you can you can turn toward there as you prepare right now another another long lead up Another long intro as we get ready for Genesis chapter 45, but in Genesis chapter 45, we see Joseph's ability to forgive, and it's worth spending some time this morning to think about, as we, as I said, consider our own, our own agency, because it's something that cuts across, like, all of who we are and how we live, like, on a daily basis, this idea of forgiveness, this ability to forgive, and how it affects our lives, how it... Um, how it reflects our understanding of our relationship with God, how it affects our relationships with people. Like, it's a constant, every single day, like, part of our lives. And so it's worth spending some time on. So a quick recap. I'm going to do this quick recap thing again. But we're we are going to hone in on an attribute of Joseph. Joseph is faithful to God in delivering proper interpretation, right? That's how his story starts. He's rewarded with hate. Joseph is faithful to his dad and going to bring back his brothers. He's rewarded with murder conspiracy by mass murdering siblings. We're not going to really cover this. We're not going to go read the chapter. I think it's chapter 35, 34, 35, 36, somewhere right around there where we're given the story of Joseph's brothers that go and like murder a whole village of people, you know, when they're recovering from their circumcision. Uh, his brothers go and like slaughter a whole village as retribution for how their sister Dinah was treated. She was raped. 
Joseph was being, um, was having a conspiracy against him by those same people. <laughs> so it's like, it's not just like, ah, these guys, you know, they're really bothered by him. Like, when these guys are planning to kill Joseph, like, believe that. They're planning to kill him. Like, they've proven that. They killed a whole village off. But that's how he's rewarded for following and being faithful his father, Jacob. Joseph is faithful to Potiphar, prosperous Potiphar's house, rewarded with being noticed, I guess you could say. <laughs> rewarded with being noticed by Potiphar's wife. He's faithful to Potiphar in resisting said sexually aggressive wife because that's what she was. And he's rewarded with slander and imprisonment. He's faithful to the warden of the prison and prospers the prison house, quote unquote. And he's rewarded with just more time in prison. Years. He's rewarded or he's faithful to God in delivering more interpretation of those two guys that came into prison. Pharaoh's servants, cupbearer, bread maker, or chief baker. And he's rewarded with being forgotten for helping them. He's faithful in more interpretation of the Pharaoh's dream, and he's rewarded with prospering, again, a point I made last week, with prospering the wrong house, with prospering and being blessed by the wrong father, you know, in all those different ways that I listed last week. So this is a recap of the Joseph story. Faithful, but rewarded in all the wrong ways. And it's at this point that we're tempted to think how great it is, like that this is, <coughs> excuse me, the pinnacle of Joseph's story, the palace, where he's at now. But it's not. The payoff to the Joseph arc, the pinnacle of the Joseph arc, rather, is here in Genesis chapter 45. So now we will read again. Genesis chapter 45. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room when he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. And then he broke down and he wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? It's a weird time to ask that question. Like, bomb drop and I don't know anyways it's the first thing he asks I just find that funny like uh, imagining myself as one of his brothers in that moment like what <laughs> you're asking about who who are you I am Joseph he said please come closer so they came closer and he said again I am Joseph your brother whom you sold into slavery in Egypt but don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph said. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come down with me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen, where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and your herds, and everything you own. I will take care of you there, for there are still five years of famine ahead of us. Otherwise, you, your household, and all of your animals will starve. And then Joseph added, Look, 
You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that I really am Joseph. Go tell my father of my honored position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything you have seen, and then bring my father here quickly. And weeping with joy, he embraced Benjamin, and Benjamin did the same. And then Joseph kissed each of his brothers, and he wept over them. And after that, and after that they began talking freely with him. I think when we read this, it's like almost incomprehensible for us. Like, I don't know that any of us have gone through anything even close to what Joseph has gone through at this point in his life, like up to this point in his life. So it's, it's almost incomprehensible. But if you're not just a hollow shell of a human being and have like a heart somewhere in there, you're like moved by this. It's one of those stories that's kind of like, just, whoa. How, Joseph? Why, Joseph? For what reason? What good reason would you? It's hard to fully comprehend. I can accept that maybe I'm not for everyone, but I don't think I've ever been hated like Joseph was. Certainly not by people who I would have thought were the closest to me. Certainly not by my own siblings, although I've never asked him, do you like hate me? I can't fully comprehend the like scope and magnitude of this level of forgiveness, yet I'm still amazed by it. These people's hate, these people's bitterness led them to doing like the unthinkable, the unspeakable, like wounds that cut deep that people would like wrestle with their entire lives and trying to understand and trying to navigate the emotional baggage that that created for them. But Joseph, he extends forgiveness. But what is forgiveness? So we have to understand that. Having a proper understanding of forgiveness to appreciate, like, how? How can he do this? Like, how can he be fueled to do, to forgive those things that he's forgiving at this point? Forgiveness is understood to be a cancellation of debt, an expunging, expunge. You guys know what that means? Lisa does. Expunge means to, like, erase completely. There's no record of it. It doesn't exist anymore, the wrongdoing, the debt. It doesn't affect your future with me in relationship. The relationship is safe. It's secure. It's hopeful moving forward. Forgiveness means not counting it against me. It doesn't exist between you and I, relationally speaking. This is what forgiveness is. It's used in terms like these financial terms, but relationally speaking, that's what it means. That it's not going to affect the relationship, the security of the relationship moving forward, the hope for the relationship moving forward. This is especially important to know and appreciate and practice and propagate given today's cultural climate. Because what do we see? 
Forgiveness is like lost on society, on culture today. There is no forgiveness anymore. We have a culture that's addicted to cancel, like a drug. A culture that's too high to remember what forgiveness is, and there's no basis for it, even if they do remember it. And if they do remember it, it's weaponized. Forgiveness is weaponized, which tells you that it's not actually known for what it is, how God defines it. I forgive you, but I don't want to see you again. That's not forgiveness. I forgive you, but I don't want to be around you. That's not forgiveness. But I don't want to speak to you. What does that say about the relationship? That doesn't exactly scream secure, safe. I forgive you, but I'm withholding affection from you. I forgive you, but you'll never see your kids again. And on and on. I forgive you, but I, I just can never trust you. I forgive you, but fill in the blank. Forgiveness has become punitive at best. If it does exist, it's become punitive at best. Whatever remnant of forgiveness we see displayed in today's relationship is in fact unforgiving. It's the opposite of what forgiveness means. And I'll go one further and say that unforgiveness has even been turned into like a sort of virtue. Like we rejoice at the ability to hold that over someone. To punish someone. We rejoice in unforgiveness in the suffering of others because of some wrong they did to us. You know? They're going through this thing now. Serves them right. That's how we understand forgiveness in today's culture. It's not forgiveness. It's a lie. It's a lie to ourselves. The world has perverted forgiveness. But, and when we live, sorry, and when we live in this perversion, there's a lot of things going on. In particular, when we live in this perversion, when disciples of Christ don't forgive as he forgives. One of those things is pure disobedience. We're commanded to practice forgiveness. See this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. We forgive because Christ, and we forgive as Christ forgave. This is the standard for forgiveness. And I don't remember anywhere in Scripture where it said, Christ forgives you, but... Caveat. And when we live in this disobedience, when we refuse to live in the, that and to practice that, when it's a, not a part of our agency, when it's not realized as a part of who we are, it's a sin against God. Plain and simple. Disobedience to God, a sin against him. And we live in this ironic sort of reality or understanding or whatever you want to call it. You know, we sin because someone sinned against us. So we justify it. We justify our unforgiveness because ours came second or I don't know. It's weird. 
It's how adults play he hit me first. Right? We tell our kids that's ridiculous. That's childish. Adults do that in the way that they don't forgive, in their unforgiveness. Another thing that's going on in this perversion is that we challenge Christ's sufficiency. Jesus, his work on the cross covers all these sins. Yeah, I know that, but I require more. I require a pound of flesh. Christ is not sufficient enough. God, you can sit this one out. And then another irony that's going on is that we tell ourselves that it's, it's healing for us to act in this way, right? I've heard it said that holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting another person to die. The irony in living this unforgiveness is that it actually destroys us. Our hearts are corrupt. We're, we fester inside. You know what that means, fester? It's like we rot away. We rot away inside. And this is how the world has come to um, practice forgiveness. But Joseph and his story points to something different. Joseph tells us that forgiveness has a purpose, and it's not to punish, like the world has come to define it. What we see in Joseph's story is that forgiving, his forgiving purpose was to bring about redemption. Joseph understood that where God had brought him up to this point and pinnacle in chapter 45, that his forgiveness had a purpose, and it was to redeem to redeem a relationship, to preserve life. We talked about last week not just preserving any life, but preserving the promised seed, preserving Judah's life. He has to know that God is playing a much bigger game and that Joseph is a part of it. God is playing a bigger game than just Joseph's own circumstances. And knowing that, it allows him, it fuels the kind of forgiveness that is asked of us. The kind of forgiveness that points toward the one who saves us. That points toward Christ. It's what enables a betrayed and, for all intents and purposes, a murdered brother to ask his brothers to come closer to him. To kiss them and to weep over them. This ability to forgive, it's something that's it's tied up and rooted in redemption. This is the biblical understanding of forgiveness. Knowing that our own status and our own relationship with God, it's what enables us to turn heinous acts to turn around and provide the same measure of grace that's been provided to us. It's literally what fuels the ability to do so. It's what should fuel the ability to do so. Romans chapter 12 says, let God have what's God's judgment. 
That's not for you. That's not for you to hold on to. And it follows that up with a command, a command to forgive. Let God handle his business. You handle your business. Your business is to forgive. Your, your business is to allow, is to not take for yourself what isn't yours. You know, someone sins against us. They're really sinning against God. They don't understand their relationship with God and with man. It's not necessarily for us. Let God have what's his. They're sinning against God. Joseph understood his role as of forgiveness. The way he forgives, it needed to have a purpose. And it went through this redeeming process. And what we see in chapter 45 is Joseph obliterating all these myths about forgiveness that we've come to understand today. The sorry myth. Sorry means we don't do it anymore. That's not true. Right? We're sinful people. We're going to keep sinning against others. Our own people. Like, not because we want to. It's part of, it's part of our struggle against sin. Like, and when sinners come together, like, that's what you get. <laughs> you get more of it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, like when he's asked by Peter, by Peter, like how, how many times should I forgive? And, you know, Jesus doesn't give us a complex math equation to follow and, you know, make sure we do it that many times, 70 times seven. Like the point he's making is like live in it, get to know it. Another myth, forgiveness only happens when it's asked for. Well, Joseph uh, obliterates that. And we hold on to that and we let it, again, fester inside of us for some people their whole lives. Joseph's brothers didn't come before Joseph and say, Joseph, here we are. We're really sorry. Please forgive us. Like, they didn't even know who he was. They didn't recognize him for who he was. I didn't ask for anything, but what does Joseph do? Well, he's there and ready and prepared to do what he needs to do. Joseph understood the purpose of his forgiveness. He chooses not to punish them. He chooses to expunge it. Another myth that forgiveness can only happen when there's like full repentance from someone. No, fully repenting of what they did to you. I mean, once again, if we're, if we're analyzing the story of Joseph, that's not what's recorded for us. His brothers didn't. Maybe even the opposite. Like, they were just, they just felt guilty, and they were still kind of just looking out for their own interests. We see this all the way, like, up until the end after Jacob dies. You know, they have this moment of insecurity. What's going to happen to us now that dad's dead? Is, are, are we screwed now? Is he coming for our head? Were we only preserved because 
he was honoring dad. Like, they're not repentant. <laughs> it seems like they're still just kind of selfishly looking out for themselves. We don't have any sort of interaction that they were truly contrite toward Joseph, with Joseph. And yet, Joseph, come close to me. And it's not the picture we see in Christ. Christ on the cross appeals to his father, like in his last moments. Forgive them, they don't even know what they're doing. The myth is that we need this before we can move on. It's not true. It's not what we see from Joseph, from Christ. The logical outworking of the forgiveness myths, forgiveness myths, is what plagues a society today. It's kind of what, what led us to where we are today an improper understanding, a perversion of forgiveness. And when a Christ-like forgiveness doesn't permeate in the lives, in our lives, in the lives of men, then what you're left with is the obligation to punish. That's what we're left with, and that's where we are. That's how people are treated. You didn't ask for forgiveness, so I have to punish you. You didn't repent of the wrongdoing to me, wrongdoing you did to me so I'm obligated to punish you judgment and punishment become the de facto sort of relational response because we've perverted forgiveness and how's that working out like look around read the news we rejoice at the opportunity to cut someone down for what they did to us we, we like we throw ourselves back in time to look for reasons to cut someone down. We're encouraged to do that, like to have our pound of flesh. Like we're encouraged to do that. Another myth, forgiveness requires us to just forget. Is that what we see in Joseph? Is that what we just read? Please come closer. So they came closer, and he said to them, I'm Joseph, your brother, who you sold into slavery. Joseph remembers damn well what they did. But don't be upset. Don't be angry. We're not created to forget. I don't think humans are created to forget. And when we do forget, we have to go to a doctor. Something's dying in our brain. <laughs> Is that it does remember and chooses a different path despite the wrongdoing. Like, would forgiveness be as beautiful if we had amnesia? about something wrong done to us. I don't think so. It would, it would like, be weightless. It would mean nothing. Forgiveness works, is beautiful, because it remembers the wrongdoing. It acknowledges it. 
and decides it doesn't matter. We move forward together. There's hope. The relationship is safe. Joseph didn't forget what happened to him. Joseph didn't forget that he was betrayed, murdered, and sold into slavery. I say murdered because they murdered him in his heart. <laughs> like it, he was dead to them. If not physically, he might as well have been, you know, like in every other way. He was dead to them. They killed him off. Joseph doesn't forget it. He remembers it and chooses to redeem the relationship. I remember what you did. Come close to me. I remember what you did. I'm here to preserve your lives. I remember what you did. God is good. I remember what you did. These are my tears of joy. And it's powerful because it's exactly what we have in Christ. And it's powerful in movies and in TV and everything because that's exactly what Christ provides. Our sins are known, yet he still wants us to be near to him. Our lives are preserved in spite of our transgression. He came before us so that we sin, we despise him, we reject him, we kill him. He dies on the cross for us, and he prepares for us a place alongside him. Sounds like the story of Joseph. Prepared a place, prepared a land, prepared a place alongside them, preserved them, restored the relationship. Once again, the beauty in Joseph's story is that it's not his own. It's Christ's. It points directly to him, to the gospel. Another myth, forgiveness makes everything better. Doesn't. There's still a reconciled rec not even gonna try it. The Tory word for it. <laughs> Reconciliatory. Thanks. There's still a reconciliatory <laughs> process that has to take place. It's not that it just it's a magic wand. That's why Jesus talks about it in that Matthew 18 verse. 70 times 7. That's why the New Testament writers are constantly writing about living in that, living in forgiveness. It doesn't make everything better, and it doesn't make it all go away. Because, as I said, because we're sinful. We sin against others. There needs to be an abundance of forgiveness in our lives, in our relationships with each other. It needs to be, as I said at the top, arguably more than any other thing, it needs to be like a defining characteristic of who we are. And if grace and forgiveness doesn't rule our relationships, then something else takes its place. Something else evil. Bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, a loss of love. Joseph didn't have a loss of love for his brothers. Quite the opposite. That's why we're like befuddled by the whole thing. There was seemingly no loss of love 
come closer to me. And they wept, and he kissed them. It says in the, in the scripture, like, he couldn't even, like, handle it anymore. You know? Like, his emotion was bursting for his brothers. That's the picture that's painted. It's not a loss of love. One way is a picture of who Christ is, and another mocks who Christ is. And our agency needs to be ruled by forgiveness. Our forgiveness should imitate that of Joseph's. When I say, look at Joseph, do like Joseph. I say that because he points exactly to Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ is what Paul says. Forgiveness which is obliged to redeem, to restore, rather than to punish, to cut down, to end, to put to death a relationship. A forgiveness which is obliged to redeem and restore it. Which honors and loves relationship with our brother and our sister and which is taught to us by God who loves obviously a relationship with us so much that he sends Christ to restore it. I have three questions for you guys. First question. How do you forgive? What purpose does it have? That might sound weird. But if you ever asked yourself, like, what's my purpose in forgiving this person? As we highlighted, like, the world takes that concept of forgiveness with a purpose and just perverts it. What's my purpose in forgiveness and forgiving someone who does wrong to me, sins against me? Second question, do you allow your relationship with Christ to inform that process? What is that process? What's the process you go through in forgiveness? And then last question, what myths about forgiveness have you had to overcome? What myths about forgiveness have you had to overcome? Let's go discuss.